Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. I hope you have your Bibles today. Let me encourage you to find uh, Acts chapter number 13. Acts chapter number 13. We're going to pick up in verse number 13. We have just spent the last three weeks talking about a spirit-filled church and uh, desiring that Maysville Baptist Church reflect a New Testament church and be a spirit-filled church. One uh, that uh, we know and clearly understand that the Holy Spirit of God is involved in our structure, in our leaders, and in our outreach. Uh, we want God also to be uh, having His intentions and purposes that He has upon our church to call believers out, to send believers out, to fill believers up when, he's, when they're out serving the Lord. And then we want the Holy Spirit as well to interact with us as we do experience spiritual oppression and that we gain spiritual victory through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we see oftentimes here as we come to Acts chapter 13, anytime you have a spiritual victory and the devil hates it, he's going to do everything in his power to come in and cause division. He wants to disrupt the unity of a local body of believers. And he's got one bullet in his gun that he uses every single time. Every time the devil wants to use this issue of lying, untruthfulness to cause division within a local body of believers. And we see that happening here in the text. Verse number 13 of chapter 13 is a transitionary statement. It's probably one of the saddest uh, encounters that we find in the New Testament church. It's the very first spiritual disagreement. Now, we're living in a culture today, PJ, where you can't get a room full of Christians together and them agree upon hardly anything. I mean, it is a really serious challenge that we're experiencing in our culture today. And rightly so, I'm a firm believer of whichever way the family goes, that's the way the nation's going to go. And so when you look at the core root of a family and see that there's disunity that's, in, that's uh, been interrupted in a family or in families then it just would stand to reason that across the United States that disunity would ultimately result in a nation that is not unified as well. And we are doing everything in our power, it looks like, to disagree with each other. And I think social media has been one of the greatest hindrances in regards to this. I mean, you, you've got uh, not just uh, uh, children or siblings disagreeing with each other. You've got siblings disagreeing with their parents. You've got parents disagreeing with each other. Uh, you've got Christians who love the Lord. I don't question anybody's love for the Lord. My question is, do you fear the Lord? But we see individuals that are just um, in disagreement all the time. It reminds me of a story I heard of a, a man been married to his wife for over 40 years. And they love to hate each other. You ever met anybody like that? I mean, they just love to hate each other. Uh, well, these two love to hate each other. They live to hate each other. But one day the wife says, I'm going to try to do something nice for my husband. So Tara, she got up, she went to the kitchen, and she fixed him a nice breakfast. And she fixed him some toast some bacon, and fixed him two types of eggs. So I'm going to satisfy him. So she fixed him some scrambled eggs, and then she fixed him some fried eggs. She put the plate down in front of him, and he came beep bopping down and sat down there, looked at her and looked at the plate, shook his head and said, well, you did it again. She said, well, what have I done this time? He says, look, you fried the wrong egg. We argue and gripe and get upset about anything. When really what we need to do is we need to live at peace with everyone, as the Scripture says. And we need to do everything in our power to seek forgiveness. That is the key to clearly living the abundant Christian life, is understanding this issue of forgiveness. We find a very similar circumstance that happened here in Acts chapter 13, in verse number 13. It's a transitionary statement. Look at what the Bible says very quickly. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Pampas, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, 
And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. John Mark left Paul and Barnabas. Now, Luke, when he wrote this, is very tight-lipped on it. You've got to go in other parts of Scripture to exactly find out just exactly what happened here. And really, the only word that we find uh, that, that gives us any insight as to what happened here uh, is found on Paul's second missionary journey when Barnabas, who, by the way, was John Mark's uncle, when he tried his best to get John Mark to join the team again on the second missionary journey, and Paul adamantly said, no, he's not going to join us. He deserted us when we were in Asia Minor, referring back to this particular location. And so Paul says that John Mark just deserted them. Now the question is this, why was there such a disagreement? Why did John Mark desert, desert them? Why did he just up and leave? Well, we know a little bit about John Mark's background. We know that he was very affluent. He came from a very wealthy family. As a matter of fact, it was in his home that one of the churches met there in Jerusalem and, and was very uh, functional, didn't have really any needs at all financially because they had everything that they needed uh, from John Mark's family. So we knew that this affluence affected John Mark in some way. Now remember, Barnabas, his uncle, was really the head man. He was, he, he was uh, uh, the one that was in charge up until this point. But we find here in this spirit-led church or this spirit-filled church, when Paul took the reins and began to preach and, and do great things uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit of God, Barnabas, who by the way was the son of encouragement, took a step back and he let Paul lead. Well, it'd be very obvious that John Mark, when he saw his uncle be, quote, demoted in his eyes, got a little bit upset about it. He got hurt over that. And then we also know that because they were going into the Gentile nations, they knew that where they were headed, then that part of Asia Minor, man, it was wild. It was like the Wild West out there. I mean, there were all kind of bandits and bad guys and awful people. And, and quite frankly, it would have been a little bit scary for anybody. John Mark knew that back home there was a church that was established that he could go serve in and not have to worry about all those dangers. So John Mark just packed his stuff up and said, You guys have a nice time reaching those uh, Gentiles. I'm out of here. And he left them. And he deserted them. That would have been a terrible, terrible story if the Word of God stopped right there and we had two Christian leaders in the church that never came back together and never got forgiveness from one another. But thank God, in the Word of God, we see that's not the end of the story. We find that when Luke was with uh, Paul over uh, in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we find Paul say something, if you would, uh, to, uh, to Timothy in response to John Mark's situation. He says this, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, he says, only Luke is with me. Luke is with me and he says, go get John Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So we find that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, that John Mark and Paul get things right. They have this come to Jesus meeting where they finally air out whatever it is and grievance that they have against one another. And the result of that is forgiveness. So much so that Paul says that John Mark is helpful in the ministry and he wants him to come with him to see him so that he can help in the area of ministry. But at this moment in time, in Acts chapter 13, is where it all fell apart. It is where John Mark left Barnabas and Paul and went back. He literally abandoned them. And in verses 14 through 16, we see that Paul and Barnabas pressed on. They didn't stop and moan. They didn't cry about it. They just got up the next day and they went to Poseidon Antioch uh, and they went straight into the synagogue. Now, let me just say this. This isn't the same Antioch they left from. This Antioch was the region of Pisidia uh, in Asia Minor, which is just north of Pamphylia. It was actually built by Silasius I, 
who uh, named this city in honor of, of Antiochus, who was a common name in his family. As a matter of fact, when you look in this region during this period of time, you'll note that there's about 16 cities by the same name. So the first century church started there in Antioch, just outside of Jerusalem. And then another two hours or so uh, north of there was another city by the name of Antioch. This is where Paul and Barnabas were located. They were heading towards the Gentile nations. When they got to Antioch, to this location, the first place they went was the synagogue. And as they were there at the synagogue, we see that they did what they normally did in any city. They went on this Saturday, this Sabbath day if you would, to go and to listen to the reading of the law, to listen to uh, the prophets, what the prophets of God had to say in regards to the word of God. And then were given a courteous opportunity to speak words of encouragement. Let me show you what I mean. Look in verse number 14 of our text, in the verses 14 through 16. But when they, that's Paul and Barnabas, departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Presidia, and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now, let me just say something parenthetically here. Some might ask, well, why don't we have church on Saturday? Because it's like that's when they were going. Well, remember, in the, uh, uh, in the pastoral epistles, we're going to find that Jesus tells us and encourages us to come on the first day of the week. And what's the first day of the week for us here in this culture? Sunday. So this is why we come on Sunday to worship on the first day of the week, because the Scripture tells us to do so. So we find this transitionary period taking place here. Now, are there churches that still meet on the Sabbath? Yeah, they still meet on a Saturday. Yes. Uh, so well, are they doing wrong? Well, according to the Bible, the Bible says that we're to come on the first day of the week. If Saturday was the first day of the week, we'd meet on Saturday. But Sunday is the first day of the week, so we meet on Sunday. Verse number 15. The Bible says, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. Now let me stop right there and say a couple of things, if I could parenthetically, regarding this passage of Scripture. Here we see Paul and Barnabas continue to move forward. And when they are given this opportunity to speak, this is a customary thing that happens in the Jewish synagogues. After the reading of the law, after the reading of the prophets, they would say, does anyone have a word of encouragement? Paul, whom, by the way, if he sat on his hands, would choke to death, begins to wave with his hands. He says, oh, sir, you have something you want to say. Say on. He knew that Paul was a rabbi. Paul is no stranger to the synagogues. And so Paul stands up and motions with his hands, the Bible says, and he begins to identify two groups of people that are located in this synagogue. Now this is vitally important because remember, Paul is moving out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world. To the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. So notice what he says here in verse number 15. The Bible says there in the latter part, uh, after they read the law, after they read, uh, the, the chief rabbi said, Ye men and brethren, if you have any words of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, beckoning with his hand, said, here's the first one if you're writing and marking in your Bibles, men of Israel. I would underline that, men of Israel. Why? Because he's identifying a group of people in the synagogue. These people are Jews. These are Jewish people. Now, you cannot negate the conjunction that's found in verse number 16. It's that little word and, A and D. It's connecting another group of people that are also located in the synagogue that Paul wants to address. Look at what the scripture says. The Bible says, not only men of Israel and, he says, ye that fear God, give audience. I would underline there, ye that fear God. He is speaking specifically to God-fearers. Who are the God-fearers? Remember, we've already dealt with this. We've already talked about who God-fearers were uh, earlier in the text. Here, you'll note, you'll note today, there's a lot of teaching involved in this particular passage of Scripture because it is Paul's sermon, and he is communicating and teaching the most important thing when it comes to Christianity, and that's who Jesus Christ is. 
who he is. And so he introduces, if you would, his audience. Jews and God-fearers. God-fearers were anybody else outside the Jewish race that would come to a synagogue and listen to what they had to say because, watch this, God-fearers believed in a monotheistic God. They are living in a culture where they believe in polytheism, all different kinds of gods. There are gods everywhere, Aphrodite, um, all these different types of, of false gods that they're worshiping little G's. But there are those that say, that can't be right. There must be one mono, singularity, one God, and the Jews are worshiping him. So these God-fearers go to worship this one true singular God. And they begin to learn about the Jewish ways and the Jewish heritage. And as Paul identifies them and brings them into the conversation, he says, men of Israel and God-fearers, listen to what I'm about to say. And then what happens next here in the text, we find that Paul goes into this beautiful sermon, if you would, and his sermon falls logically into three basic parts. And those are the three parts that I want you to notice today as we look at Paul's sermon. Number one, the first thing I want you to note is found in verses 17 through 23. Verses 17 through 23. We note in this passage of Scripture that Paul, first of all, talks about a promise fulfilled. A promise fulfilled. Paul begins by focusing on two things to get the attention of these lost Jews and lost Gentiles. Look at verse number 17, and let's read it for context purposes, and then I'll make some comments about it. He says in verse number 17, The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about that time, for forty years, suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of, the, in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. In this section of Scripture, we see that Paul is communicating a promise fulfilled. He, first of all, the first thing we see here in the, in the text is a review of history. A review of history. When he begins to talk about this promise that was fulfilled by God, he reviews the history of Israel. And in this review of history, we see that there are basically three parts that he wants to point to. Paul, first of all, points to the Old Testament salvation. To the Old Testament salvation. Did you see it in verse 17, 18, 19, and 20? Time and time and time and time again, Paul says, God saved you, children of Israel, from your distress, from your heartache, from your disobedience, God provided a way time and time and time and time again. You see, understanding that the gospel is to the Jews first, then to the Gentile, Paul begins with the Jews and the God-fearers, and he would simply say, God has been gracious to rescue you every time you disobeyed him. It all goes back to Abraham when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter number 12. That covenant promise was being fulfilled time after time after time after time as God continued that covenant to Abraham's seed. 
as he listened uh, to what the children of, of God had to say in regards to their murmuring and their disobedience. Yet he still spoke to Isaac. He still spoke to Jacob. He still commissioned the 12 tribes. He caused them to grow uh, as numerous as the sands of the sea. He gave them more numbers than you could count in the stars. He promised them that he would deliver them out of Egypt. And even in their rebellion at the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, and the border of the Promised Land, God time and time and time and time again saved them in that Old Testament journey. Paul simply said, when you look at your history, Jews, when Jewish people look at the history, you cannot ignore that God's plan of salvation was all on him every time in the Old Testament. We also note the fact that God made a promise even back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 18. God promised that he would send a Messiah. That promise coupled with the Abrahamic covenant, coupled with God's gracious love towards the Jews, gives us this beautiful Old Testament history that there's only one person, one person in charge of salvation. That person is God. God is the one that does the saving. Then there's a transition in verse number 21. Not only do you see here God's Old Testament salvation, but in verse 21 you see Israel's rejection of God's salvation. Israel rejects God's salvation. Look at what the Bible says again in verse number 21. The Bible says, And afterward they, the children of Israel, desired a king. I would underline that word there. They desired a king. Because it is showing a rebellion in Israel to push away, if you would, uh, the, the leadership that God had given them by himself. God was the leader of Israel. God had given them everything that they desired. He met every need that they had. Yet Israel says, we want to be like these other nations. They have kings, we want to be like them. And so they reject the leadership of God. And the Bible says, God's going to give you just exactly what you want. You want to know the reason why America's in the shape we're in today? Because we're getting exactly what we wanted. Look at what the Bible says here in the text. The Bible says here uh, in verse number 21, the scripture reads this way. And afterwards they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. He says, okay, you, you guys want, you want a king? I'll give you a king. I'll give you just what you want. And it didn't work out the way they thought it would. And so we find here in this passage of Scripture, when you read the text, you see here in the text, this where Paul is preaching about a promise fulfilled, the first thing he does is he reviews history. And he talks about this Old Testament salvation. And then he talks about how Israel rejects God's salvation. And then watch this, number three, the third thing you want you to see here in the text is that we find God's New Testament salvation. Notice verse number 22, the Bible says this. The Bible says uh, there in the text as he goes on, he says, and when he had removed him, when God took out what they wanted, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my law. I would underline that word, all my law, because here's the contrast. Did you see it in verse number 21? In verse number 21, you see the desire of Israel. In verse number 22, you see the desire of God. You see, if we will accept God's plan, it will work out so much better than trying to push our own. And the children of Israel were trying their best to push their own way. And so he moves here, if you would. He moves here from this review of history. And he gives us this rising hope in verse number 23. Verse number 23, there's this rising hope as Paul's sermon uh, quickly leaps over, if you would, into David. And as it leaps over into David, we see that he quickly begins to talk about Jesus Christ in verse number 23. Look at what he says. He says, of this man's seed hath God a 
according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. He said, this is my plan. This is the hope of the New Testament salvation. Jesus Christ. So what's the application here when you look at this text? The application is very clear. Like the Jews and their hope in the law of Moses, we put our hope in a lot of things. You think about what we put our hope in today in 2021. We put our hope in a vaccine. We put our hope in science. Can't go a day without cutting on the TV and talking about science. We put our hope in wealth. We put our hope in power. We put our hope in social equality. Uh, We put our hope in comfort. We put our hope in convenience. Uh, We put our hope in many things across the spectrum, spectrum of our culture. But just like the law of Moses, it will not bring fulfillment. It will not bring contentment. As we see here in the text, it only brings corruption. It only brings death. Jesus is the fulfilled promise that can bring true hope to a hurting soul. As Paul preaches a promise fulfilled, he's saying Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham and the promise he made to Adam and Eve, the promise he made to us as the children of Israel, the promise that he made to Gentiles who are grafted into the children of Israel. He said God is the provided a way of salvation and that way is Jesus Christ. He gives us this rising hope. But not only does he talk about a promise fulfilled, there's a second thing I want you to notice in verses 24 through 39. The second thing I want you to notice here in the text is not only a promise fulfilled, but a promise proclaimed. A promise proclaimed in verses 24 through 39. We see here in the text that Paul proclaims some truth about this promise that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this promise uh, that he is proclaiming is built upon two points. Number one, the first point is the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin. Notice what the Bible says in verse 24 through 38. The Bible says this in the text. He says, When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, John said... Who, think that, who do you think that I am? You remember, people said, well, hey, you're Elijah. Or you're, you're one of the prophets. Uh, you, you're the coming Messiah. And then John said, I am not he, in verse number 25. But behold, there comes one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to lose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whoever is among you that fears God, you God fears, he says to you, is the word of salvation of this salvation sent. It's to you that I'm speaking to. For they that dwelt at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are are, are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, the children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. And it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And as concerning them that raised up from the dead, now no more to return to Christ. He said on this wise, 
I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he also uh, in another psalm said, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. That is, he died and was laid into his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you therefore men and brethren that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Here we find this proclamation if you would of the promise and he simply says Jesus Christ is the only way for forgiveness. It's not through the law of Moses. You can't obey the law and be saved. And so in regards to this issue, if you would, of a promise proclaimed, he said, look, you've got to understand the forgiveness of sin. And when you understand the forgiveness of sin, there are three things that you focus on. Notice what the scripture says here. In verses 24, 25, and 26, we see to whom forgiveness belongs. For whom does forgiveness belong? Did you see it there in verse 24, 25, and 26? He tells us there in verse number 26, he says, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. In the text, we see very plainly to whom salvation belongs. It belongs to everyone. Whosoever will. Anybody can be saved. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're from Asia, Africa. It doesn't matter if you're from Europe. It doesn't matter if you're from Australia. Regardless of what your heritage is, you can be saved. Number two, he also gives us here in verses 27 through 33 how forgiveness was obtained. How forgiveness was, how was it obtained? Look at what the Bible says again in verse number 33. The Bible says, And God hath fulfilled the same unto us, his children, that in that he was ra- he raised up Jesus again, as it also is written in the second song, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. How in the world are you saved? How is forgiveness obtained? It's obtained by clearly understanding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can save. We see here not only how forgiveness was obtained, we see to whom forgiveness belongs, and then in verses 34 through 38, we see why forgiveness is needed. Why forgiveness is needed. Look at what the Bible says again there in verse number 38. He says, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. You cannot be forgiven until you first understand you are a sinner. He says, We hung Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross because of our sins. And only Jesus Christ can save you. Paul will pick up on this theme in Romans where he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see the forgiveness of sins. But then I want you to notice the second thing here. I also want you to notice the focus of the saints. The focus of the saints. In verse number 39, you see that as born-again children of God, there's a three-point focus that we see here in the text that's worth Noting, it's worth underlining in our Bible. Look at what he says in verse number 39. He says, and by him, that's Jesus Christ, all, that means everything, all means all, that's all all means. He says, all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. So we find here in the text the focus of the saints. He says, look, if you're going to be a child of God, there's this focus you're going to have as a saint being saved by grace. And there's three things you're going to focus on according to verse number 39. Number one, the person. Who's the person? Look at verse number 39 again. The Bible says, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. By Jesus Christ is the only way forgiveness of sins takes place. That's the person. But then I want you to notice the power. What's the power? He tells us there in the text. He says this. He says, all that believe are justified from all things. I'd underline that word justified. That's a word that we talk about a lot of times in regards to uh, Jesus Christ. 
we say that we've been justified. And if we have been justified, the fact of the matter is simply this. What does it mean? We say justification means this. Just as if I'd never sinned. But I want to illustrate to you it's much more than that. It's much more than that. Let me give you this illustration. Let's pretend up here on this uh, platform. Th this is the throne of God on the carpet, okay? Let's say this, pretend this is God's throne where God sits and Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Down here, down on the floor, down on the floor is uh, sinfulness, sinful humanity, sinful humanity. And when we realize, and this is what Paul was preaching, that Jesus Christ is the promise that was fulfilled. The promise that was fulfilled was Jesus Christ. He was the Messiah, went to Calvary, died on the cross, was buried. On the third day, he rose again. And if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And as a result of that salvation, you are justified. So if this is sinful humanity, if we say it's just as if we never sinned, then that means we only come up half Way. It is an improper definition of justification. Because Paul was talking and preaching and teaching in the pastoral epistles again. That we have been seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenlies through Christ Jesus. So justification is not just being forgiven of sin. It's being placed in the very throne room of God. Where the right hand of the Father sits Jesus Christ. And we are in Jesus Christ. We are a part of the glory of God. By his creation and through his salvation, we've been forgiven. And we have come up from the miry muck. And he has placed us in the heavenlies. Paul says here to those uh, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles that are there. He says, and by him, all that believe are justified from all things. What's the worst thing you've ever done in the sight of God? As a born-again child of God, it can be forgiven today. Is forgiven if you're saved. He says this, not only do you see the person, the power, but I want you to see the perspective. He says, the perspective is this, in the latter part of verse 39, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He said, the law of Moses can't even get you even to the middle. You are stuck in your sin. Only Jesus can forgive you and put you in the heavenlies. Paul was preaching here, if you would, this promise that was proclaimed through Jesus Christ. And in this promise, he focused on salvation, that is forgiveness, and he focused on justification. Here's the application. The fact of the matter is that the resurrection changes our perspective. And then number three, let me give you the third thing, and I'm done. I'm going to close after this. This is it, the last, the last point, verses 40 through 43. You see it there in the text. Paul has a third point that he wants to point to, and that is a promise realized. A promise realized. Did you see what happened there in verse number 40? Look at what the Bible says. The Bible says, Beware, therefore, lest that uh, come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers and wonders, and perish. For I work a work in your day, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Now remember, Paul has just said, he stood up and he said, This salvation that I'm speaking of, of Jesus Christ, is offered to you today, Jews and Gentiles. He says, But beware, some of you will not believe. And he uses the term no wise believe. You shall in no wise believe. Some of you will reject this and turn your back on it. As a result, according to verse number 41, you're going to despise the truth. You're going to wonder against the truth. You see it there in verse 41. And you're going to perish. That word perish is a very interesting word. It carries the idea of presently, actively, today, perishing. Present tense, verb, you're perishing right now. It means that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you're sitting there perishing. And what Paul is saying to this congregation is he's saying, 
there's a hope for you. And that hope, that hope to move from a position of perishing to a position of purity and knowing where you're going to spend an eternity can only be crossed. That chasm can only be crossed by Jesus Christ. You have to come by the way of the cross. He says, but some of you will reject this. And you'll walk away. And you'll continue to perish. And then, then he says this. There's one of the realizations. And then he goes on to say this in verse 42. He says, and when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So they walk out of, out of the temple, and the Jews are following. Some of the Jews go one way, and the Gentiles begin to follow Paul and Barnabas. And, and they say this, Greg, they say, can you preach that same message next week? Will, will you do it one more time? We want to hear it one more time. And then look at what happens there in verse number 43. Now when the congregation was broken up, Many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them and persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So here, here's what happens. Jews are going one way. They're talking amongst themselves. But then there's this, there's this third category of Jews that are just laying behind and they go, that made sense. Let's, let's follow Paul and Barnabas. And they followed Paul and Barnabas as well. And they are talking to them and they're speaking with them and they're saying, we, we, we really we want to know more about this. We, we're, we are moving in the direction of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And what do we see here? There are two things I want you to note here. There are two things that we see that we can't get away from. Number one is a principle. It's a principle. What's the principle? Here it is. Realizing the truth will cause you to hunger for more truth. Don't miss it. Don't please don't miss this. Because I'm telling you, Brandon, I'm telling you, you get a hold of this, it will revolutionize your quiet time, your prayer time with the Lord. Realizing the truth will create a hunger for more truth. When these Jews and Gentiles realized that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, they couldn't wait till next Saturday. They followed behind and said, we want to know more. We want to tell us right now. We want to know more about this. We believe this. Why? Because when you realize truth, it creates a deeper hunger for more truth. It's like uh, that song that, um, that Phil was singing uh, over there from the book of Psalms. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth for thee. Why is that deer panting for that water? Because it realizes that water satisfies its thirst. And the only thing that can satisfy the perishing that we're going through, the agony that we're experiencing, the heartache, the only solution is Jesus Christ. And once you realize that, then you begin to hunger for more. I used this illustration in the first hour. It's like the first time uh, I went to Stonewall's Barbecue. Here's a shameless plug for Stonewall Barbecue. How many of you have been to Stonewall's up there? Oh, my goodness. Yes, it'll make your tongue beat your brains out. i uh, tell you what happened in my case. In my, in my case, I went over there, never been there before, or understand it started in commerce. I understand the history. Look, I've already studied that place. I, I mean, it's good, 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 good. And so I... I, I didn't know, I didn't know until I ordered it, that their wings are smoked. That's a game changer. And, and not only that, listen to this, not only are their wings smoked, they're bigger than your average wing. And, and then there was a third thing. They've got some bread pudding that, no joke, I, if my grandma was alive, I'd go and we'd go have a little conversation why she didn't get that recipe. I just don't understand it. But when I take and I realized that they had bread pudding, that they had smoked wings that are bigger than most wings, what happened? I hungered for more. But don't go on Mondays because they're closed. <laughs> if you're hungry, you got to wait till Tuesday. But it's true. 
When you realize the truth, you hunger for more truth. That's the principle. And then here's the final thing. We see the product. What's the product? The product here is the grace of God. Look at the Bible here. Here's what the scripture says. Here's the product. He goes on to say, he says, they, they're hungering for more. Tell us, speak, we're speaking to them now, according to verse number 43. And the Bible says, Paul and Barnabas, who's speaking to them. So Paul and Barnabas are going to talk to them, and this is what they say. They say this, continue in the grace of God. Now, uh, uh, what in the world does that mean? Continue in the grace of God. I mean, why didn't he just say, pray this prayer right here and get saved? No, listen to me very carefully. In regards to the grace of God in verse 43, this implies that they had begun to accept and receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. They receive the grace that God's offering them for salvation. But what he's telling them is this. Continue on in that grace and don't slip back into the law. Keep moving forward in your grace. Remember what Paul said to the church at Ephesus. By the way, in speaking about the church at Ephesus, this, this is where Ephesus is located. It's located in this region right here. And, and Paul said this to the church at Ephesus. Uh, he went on to say, continue in the grace of God. That's what he told the church at Ephesus. Continue in the grace of God. Because too often we are saved through faith. That not of yourselves is the gift of God. uh, Not as a result of works so that any man could boast. We are saved by grace through faith. But here's what happens. We then, after we receive Jesus Christ, and we receive the grace that God offered us, as we realize what a wretch we were, then what do we do? We fall back into our graceless works mentality. And falling back into that, grace is not just the way we enter our personal relationship with Jesus, but it is the only way to continue an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So shortly after Paul left Galatia, uh, where, by the way, this Antioch is located, he was forced to write them a letter, and that letter is found in Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, he asks questions like this. He says, Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit and are now being perfected by the flesh. And then he says again in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 7, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So what happened in their life is this. They received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. Paul and Barnabas turn to them and say, Continue in the grace of God. Don't go back into the legalism. Don't go back into that mess. And what do they do? When Paul and Barnabas leave and continue to make their way to preach the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world, they go back to the synagogue and they fall right back into a graceless, law-based living. And Paul's going to spend the rest of his ministry, when he writes the pastoral epistles, he's going to start defending this issue of the liberty you have in Jesus Christ. And he says this liberty that we have in Jesus Christ is clearly understanding we can do whatever we want to do. Remember when he wrote to the church at Corinth? He said we can do whatever we want to. But I am constrained to walk after holiness Because if meat makes my brother stumble, I'm going to be sensitive to that brother and I'm not going to eat meat. I'm not going to poke my finger in his eye and say, you're wrong, you're so dumb. You can eat that burger. No, if it makes makes your brother stumble, then I'm not going to eat meat. I'm going to wait till I get home and I'm going to do it in the privacy of my own. Understanding your Christian liberty walks hand in hand with the grace of God. This is going to be one of the deciding factors when we get to, to when Paul begins to write to Timothy and he begins to tell Timothy to, hey, bring John Mark back with you. Why? Because remember at verse number 13 of chapter 13, we find this disagreement and John Mark deserts him. You know what's going to bring him back? Continuing in the grace of God. Paul's going to continue in the grace of God. John Mark's going to continue in the grace of God. They're going to be a living example of even though they had this disagreement, God's going to bring them back together because of God's grace. 
Our culture today, especially in the realm of Christendom, and I've got to close, I've got to wrap this thing up and lay in this plane. In the realm of Christianity, we've got too many born-again children of God that are suffering from disagreements. At what point, brothers and sisters, are you going to continue in the grace of God and come back together? It happened in John, Mark, and Paul's life. It needs to happen in our life. So, dear friend, I I offer to you this. Number one, if you're lost and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, Paul's message was a message of salvation. But number two, Paul's message also contained an element of spiritual growth. And that spiritual growth was this. Continue in the grace of God. How do you do that, Pastor? Don't miss it. Don't miss it. The principle. When you realize truth, you hunger for more truth. Get in the Word of God and start hungering for the Word of God. Let's bow for prayer. You might be here today and maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. Then, dear friend, today I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to receive Christ as your Savior. Paul said in the book of Romans, If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. From your heart to God's heart, would you pray something like this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Today I repent of my sins and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.